We're going to be looking at the entirety of chapter 19, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 8 this morning, and then we'll work our way through the rest of the text. On the third moon, new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And the Lord called out of the mountain, Excuse me. You yourselves have seen how I brought, said to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, come now. Tend to your word. Illuminate to our eyes and our hearts that we may see Jesus. Pray that you would do this because we're needy people, we're forgetful people. So come now in power, we pray in Christ's matchless name. Amen. Our study here in the book of Exodus brings us to Exodus chapter 19. And Exodus chapter 19 is one of the most important chapters really in the scriptures because if you don't understand what happens in Exodus chapter 19, you won't understand what happens in Exodus 20, which is God giving the law his Ten Commandments to Israel. And so this chapter kind of sets the stage for what will happen in Exodus 20 that we will see over the coming weeks. And so what we'll learn today is critical for us having a proper understanding of the function of the law in the people of Israel. But in turn, also that we would have a proper understanding of the law's place in the life of the believer as well. We're possessive people, aren't we? We like to make known what is ours. Why? Because what we treasure, what we value, what we love, we hold in high regard. And so this is why when a child picks up a toy that's not his or hers, and the owner of that toy finds out, they come over and they say, that's mine. Or why in a wedding ceremony, as a husband and a wife, as a bride and groom, are displaying their undying loyalty and professing that to one another, the man says, I take you to be my wife. And she says, I take you to be my husband. That's why as parents, we make sure people know who are our children. That's my son that made that play. That's my daughter up on the stage. Well, God makes that great announcement to his people, calling them his beloved. He says, they're my beloved, my bride, my flock, my children, and he makes this known at different times and in different ways throughout the scriptures. But here in chapter 19 of Exodus, God makes that announcement in one of the most significant events in all of redemptive history. For Israel is brought to the foot of Mount Sinai, and God is going to covenant 
with his people Israel as a nation. And so from this text this morning, I want us to investigate three aspects of this event that unfolds here on Mount Sinai. First, we're going to see how God covenants with his people. And then we'll next discover that God comes down to meet his people. And then lastly, we'll see how God provides a mediator for his people. So God's people, after being brought out of slavery in Egypt, they're heading to the promised land, right? And God decides, instead of taking them the quickest route, he actually detours them, takes them in the complete opposite direction of the promised land. And at this point, they find themselves three months to the very day that God marched them out through the Red Sea at the base of Mount Sinai. And Israel, for the better part of a year, is going to spend their time around and camped around Mount Sinai. And we'll see this unfold through the remaining of the book. Now, you can only imagine what the Israelites must have been thinking because they're now further away from the promised land than they were when they were enslaved in Egypt. That land flowing with milk and honey that they were dreaming of and longing for was now met with the harsh reality of dry, dusty, mountainous wilderness. This is where God decides to meet his people. But in reality, you and I don't really have to imagine the struggle that the Israelites were facing, do we? We don't have to imagine why things play out differently than the way that we desire or hope that they would, just as the Israelites were finding out. We've had the same question for God. Maybe you've come and trusted Christ with your life, and you're thinking that things are going to improve in your life. They're going to get better, only to find them getting worse. Or that thing that you've been desiring for God to give you is further from your grasp now than it was before. As you look at the circumstances of your life, it seems as though God's taking you in the opposite direction of where you desire to go and where you thought He might be taking you. What's in times like these where God is still operating in our lives with His grace, even though we might want to speak to the contrary. As we've been saying all along in our study through the book of Exodus, In order to get to the promised land, you must necessarily go through the wilderness. This is the path, though, that Jesus himself took, was it not, when he came to earth? His followers heard him speak of the kingdom of God, and they were excited and ecstatic for all that this meant for them. But then they couldn't figure out why Jesus had to go to the wilderness, as it were, and go to the cross and die. His disciples, his followers couldn't understand why was this necessary and part of the plan. But Christ had to go through the wilderness and give his life up on the cross so that we could have everlasting life and experience communion and fellowship with him for all eternity in the new heavens and new earth. This is how God's grace most often operates. You cannot have the resurrection without the cross. So Moses makes his way up the mountain for the first of seven trips to meet with the Lord. And God tells Moses, beginning in verse 3, he says, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What God's doing here is he's laying the groundwork for entering into this covenant relationship with Israel. 
Now, this covenant is, is a legal relationship uh, that is, involves oaths and, bond, and uh, bonds and things. It's a, commu- excuse me, it's a mutual commitment between two or more parties together. It involves responsibilities, stipulations on both parties. And so what we see here is that God's giving this covenant in the context, in the framework of grace. And so in verses 3 and 4, he kind of has this redemptive prologue that we see here. Because God wants us to understand that the covenant relationship that he is forming, that he's confirming here with Israel, is grounded in grace. It is a gracious relationship that he's entering into. Israel does nothing to earn or deserve this relationship. And we see God communicating three aspects here uh, in verse 3. Uh, he says first, he's reminding them of judgment. He's reminding his people how he judged the Egyptians, how he brought them out through the Red Sea. But he's doing so to let them know, hey, this could have been your end as well because of your unrighteousness. God had every right to judge Israel. And the difference between Israel and Egypt was not that they were meritorious and Egypt wasn't. It was simply because God poured his mercy out upon Israel. And so they were to remember God's grace upon them through his saving acts and bringing them out of slavery. Next, God tells Moses to remind them how he bore them on eagles' wings, he says. Israel needed to remember how God liberated them. It wasn't as if Israel rose up in power and said, you know, we're going to take on the Egyptians and the government here and we're going to free ourselves and find success in doing so. No, it was God who parted the seas. It was God who provided food and water and protection after he brought them onto dry land as they wandered through the wilderness. Israel couldn't take credit for any good that they'd experienced. It was God's grace. And lastly, God tells Moses to remind Israel that it was I who brought you to myself. Remember, going back to Exodus 3, when God speaks to Moses in the burning bush, what he tells Moses, he says, you're going to bring my people out and y'all are going to worship me on this mountain. That's coming to fruition now. God's saying to his people, look, I didn't wait for you to get your act straight and to make your way out. I came and pursued you. I was the one that came and freed you. Over and over, it was my grace being poured out upon you that you do not deserve because I've set my affections upon you and I've chosen you to be my beloved and chosen nation. See, it's essential that we see that God enters into this covenant with Israel on the basis of His grace because He graciously calls His children into relationship with Himself long before He gives the law. And calls them to obedience to that law. One commentator I was reading this week says that he says this about God's grace displayed in verses four through six. He says the sequence of these central elements laid out in these three verses is critical for understanding the whole of Scripture. That's a pretty bold claim. The sequence that he speaks of here is God's saving acts, his grace. And then the obedience that flows out of gratitude from that grace. And then the blessings that follow that are enjoyed because of obedience. And he goes on to say, nothing must, allow, must be allowed to upset this order. Grace, obedience, blessing. In other words, we can't confuse how God operates in relationship with his people. 
In making covenant with Israel, God didn't say to Israel while they're in Egypt, okay, if you'll promise to obey these ten commands I'm going to give you, then I'll save you. And if you do, sign right here. Okay, good. Now I'll bring you out safely. No, he brings them out from the hand of Pharaoh by his grace, only then to tell them, obey me and live out of your salvation so that you can experience these blessings that are now yours. This is the message of the gospel, is it not? I was a sinner in bondage to my sin. But through Christ and His grace that He showered with me, He brought me out of slavery. And now I'm free and empowered to obey all that God commands so that I can enjoy the blessings that Christ has purchased for me through the cross. We must never confuse this order. Because if we do striving for obedience becomes an attempt to justify ourselves, to try to earn something, try to earn our standing before God. Now on the surface, both of these look like they're being obedient to the commands of God. But the motivations are dramatically different. Because the former is obedience out of gratitude, out of thankfulness of something I did not deserve that I've been given. But the latter is out of obligation, it is out of duty, and it is out of attempt to earn something. Look at what God goes on to tell Moses in verse 5. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the blessings that we're just speaking of that God is laying out for his people if they obey his law. Now there's a sense in which these three blessings spelled out here, they're already Israel's in principle. Because God has saved them. But what God is saying is through Israel's obedience is that you will experience these blessings in the fullest measure possible if you obey me and walk according to my commands. God's promising to keep his covenant with Israel as she obeys him. So what God's doing is he's formalizing this relationship that's already been established by making covenant with his people. You heard those three blessings. You'll be a treasured, my treasured possession. You'll be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now the Hebrew word for treasure here refers to the personal wealth of the king. The king obviously ruled over everything that was his, and so everything in his, uh, his span was his. He enjoyed it. He's the king. But here it's referring to his personal treasure. That thing that he valued above all things, that he kept in his chamber, that he delighted in. And this is how God views Israel. But now in a real sense, he already values Israel, right? Or he would not have saved them. So what is God getting at when he says, you will be my treasured possession? Well, God does already value and treasure Israel, but he's calling for Israel to obey so that they can treasure God in the same manner. That there would be a mutually delighting in one another in this relationship. He goes on to say you'll be a holy nation, meaning that you're going to be set apart. You're going to be distinct. You're going to be different from all the other nations around you, Israel. But as we see as we come even to the New Testament, that this sentiment, this thought doesn't change because Peter speaks of this, not speaking of the nation of Israel, but speaking of the new Israel, those in the new covenant under Jesus Christ. He says in 2 Peter 9, or 1 Peter 2, excuse me, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and here it is, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, 
Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, he says, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God's telling Israel, and he's telling us this morning, I want you to obey so that you will flourish in community with one another and you will be a testimony to the nations and to the people around you. See, when we allow the gospel to reorient our lives so that we neither are self-righteous thinking that we're better than other people or the opposite extreme self-loathing thinking that we're worthless and have no value, what we have is a recipe for beautiful, vibrant community within the body of believers. Because when we recognize that our heart is wrought full of sin, but yet we've been cleaned by the blood of Christ and called His Son, His Daughter, Think about how this would affect all of our relationships that we engage in on a daily basis. No longer do we have to compare our accomplishments, compare what our children put forth and what they do, compare our financial status with one another. We would view sex differently. We'd view how we spend our money differently. We'd view how we use power in a different manner. This kind of upside-down lifestyle, it would offer a new and better alternative to the self-serving, self-seeking culture that we live in. If we're to operate like this, what we'd be doing is we'd be displaying what Jesus speaks of as his kingdom disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men. They may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. As we go low and serve one another, encourage one another, forgive one another, it's a testimony to those and they will see it and long for it. Thirdly, God says he'll make Israel a kingdom of priests. What the priests did is they brought the people together before God. They interceded for the people. And God's saying that my kingdom of priests, you will intercede again for the nations around you as you live lives of holiness. See, God has united you to himself, and he's given you everything that's his. And so now as you walk in grateful obedience, you become that light that beams out into the darkness. God covenants with his people based upon his grace. But not only does he covenant with his people, he also comes down to meet with his people. Look at verse 9. God tells Moses, Behold, I'm coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Okay, so we see that God, as he comes down to meet with his people, he doesn't uh, meet with his people in the way that you and I see one another face to face. He comes in a theophany. Children, a theophany is God appearing as a, a cloud or a river or a rainbow or a fire or a flame as we see elsewhere in Scripture. It's an appearance of God so that his people might see him insofar as they hear from him and hear his voice. Because the worship of a holy God is only made possible by God coming down to be with his people. See, this is what differentiates Christianity from every other world religion. God condescends and comes down to his people. See, every other religion is man trying to find his way to God. 
That's what we saw play out in the Tower of Babel, right? Trying to make their way, build their way to God to bridge that gap. But God condescends to meet with us right where we are. In other words, he stoops down low and lowers himself, taking a a place much lower than the level of his importance so that he can be among us. But doesn't that seem a little suspect to you? Why would a holy God come and be among sinful, rebellious people like ourselves? Later in Exodus, we're going to read about the building of the tabernacle, which was representative of where God lived and dwelt among His people in the midst of the camp. But again, why would He do such a thing? Imagine if Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, richest man in the world, reported this past week, worth over $105 billion dollars, Imagine if Jeff Bezos decided to come live in your neighborhood and buy the house right next to yours. Don't you think you'd be going, okay, what's going on here? This man has all the wealth that he could want. He could buy the city of Columbia. And he's coming to live in my humble little neighborhood right next to me. There's got to be some catch. There's got to be some hidden motive going on here. Because isn't that always the case when powerful people come close to the common man or the lowly? All right, we see it with presidents or politicians as they take photo opportunities. Right, they go to the factory or they go to the small town businesses and they take pictures. Right, they have to show that they are in touch with and they can relate to the common man. God's not using an angle here to condescend to his people. He's coming to be with his people because he's their God. And he's made them his own. The king of all creation owns everything. He needs nothing. Yet he decides to come low and be among his people. But now while God draws near to his people, our approach before God must never be irreverent or cavalier or casual in any manner. Look at what he goes on to say in verse 10. He says, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of the people, and you shall set limits for the people all around, saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. See how serious God is? He's making it abundantly clear to the people that they must approach him in a humble, reverent manner because he is holy and set apart. Did you hear that? He set limits for the people. He says, don't, even, don't, don't come up this mountain. Don't even touch the foot of this mountain or you will be put to death. And we read throughout the scriptures instances where people did not come before a holy God in a reverent manner and it didn't end well. When Yuza in 1 Chronicles 13 and he, the ark is, is tilting, it's about to fall, and he puts his hand out to steady it, which was a big no-no. And he's put to death. Or Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, when they offer an unauthorized fire and the Lord puts them to death because they were casual in their approach to a holy God. Moses was to consecrate the people and set them apart, make them ready to meet with this holy God. This is what he says, and why he tells him in verse 14 and 15. He says, wash your garments. 
which that in and of itself, just logistically, was probably a huge undertaking. They were in the dusty wilderness, right? And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people had to wash their garments. It's a symbol of becoming clean and pure before God. And then he goes on in verse 15 and says, to abstain from sex. Not because it's bad, but because I want you devoted and focused as you approach this holy God and enter into his presence. And then in verse 16, we see this unfold. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now the mountain was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had condescended on it in fire. And the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. And Moses spoke. And God answered him in the thunder. This scene is absolutely incredible. What they're beholding, the audi- just the audible effects of what's going on here, as God comes down and condescends on this mountain. There's never been a physical display like this in the history of God's redemption. And there will be a no- not be another one until the return of Jesus Christ. This isn't a God you want to approach lightly and flippantly. With all that their eyes were beholding and all that their ears were hearing, the people were shaking, trembling because of what they were hearing and seeing. Because of God's awesome power and His glory as they were beholding it. Now regardless of the image of God that you and I have conjured up in our heads, this is who God is. And He dictates how we approach Him. Now you have people that say, You know, yeah, I don't really care for the God of the Old Testament. He was a God of vengeance and wrath. But now I'm okay with the God of the New Testament, who's about love. We don't have that latitude. Because the scriptures tell us who God is. He's a God full of love, full of justice, and who is righteous and holy. See, the reality is, you and I, each one of us here, we grossly underestimate the holiness of God each and every day. Later in Exodus 33, Moses will ask to see God's glory and God responds to him, Moses, you can't see my face. No one can see my face and live. You don't know what you're asking. See, we fail to grasp the greatness of God's righteousness and his perfection. But we also fail to grasp the depth of our sinfulness and our separation from a holy God. We're in denial of all the things we've done in our past. The sinfulness that corrupts our hearts. We're in denial of what we're capable of doing as sinners. If we only knew the fullness of what we were capable of, we couldn't stand it. We would be overwhelmed and undone by it. But yet, we think that we're pretty good people. And the way we often deal with our sinfulness is we try to base our worth and our value on something else. We use that something else, whatever it is, to kind of cover up and cover our failures so that we can kind of deal with and manage our sinful hearts. Try to justify our existence by these things. I'm smarter than that person. 
I make better grades than they do. I've accomplished way more in my career than that person has. I'm funnier than they are. I serve people more than they do. I get compliments for doing it. And when we're in the presence of people that we can deem inferior to ourselves, this kind of works a little bit. It covers up the reality of our hearts. But you and I both know what happens when we get in around other people who are smarter than we are, whose jokes are funnier than ours, who are more athletic than we are, who are more accomplished and more polished than we are. It intimidates us, and it even can undo us because it reveals the reality of what lies in our hearts. And so if this can be done just by people around us, how much more so as we come before a holy, righteous, and pure God? So here's the twin reality of God's character. God is unapproachable, but yet God is approachable. God is unapproachable because of his holiness, but God is approachable, and he comes down to meet with Israel in a cloud. God accommodates himself so that he can condescend to his sinful people. He doesn't diminish his glory, but he shrouds his holiness so that he can be among his beloved people. But how can he remain in their presence because of their sinful and their failures? Lastly, we see that God provides a mediator for his people. Verse 21, God tells Moses, he says, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And Moses says, I've already told them that. They know they're not supposed to come up here. And, he, and God tells them, No, go back down and tell them again. They had become complacent. So Moses goes down again and tells the people what God has told him. See, God provided Moses as a mediator, as a go between between God and his people, so that his people would not die. Remember how resistant God's people have been to Moses as their leader? They've grumbled and complained about Moses. Why'd you bring us out here? We're just going to die. Some good you are as a leader. But as they come and experience this scene, as God comes down and meets with them, they are shaking in their sandals. What's Moses doing? Moses is trodden up the mountain, meeting with God coming back down, going back up the mountain, meeting with God, coming back down, doing as he pleases. See, when God inhabited Mount Sinai with his presence, it became, as it were, the tabernacle, the holy of holies, that only the mediator could come through. And so what God is driving home the point is saying the only way you can come into my presence and not be judged and put to death because of your sin is through a mediator. And not just any mediator, a mediator that I appoint. Go back and look at verse 11. Moses tells the people, he says, Be ready on the third day because God is going to meet with you then. Think about the first century followers of Christ. As they're hearing Jesus say all that he's going to do and say all that is going to have to happen in the life of his ministry and what will come next for telling the events of the cross. Don't you think as they heard that phrase, third day, it would have begun to resonate and they would have connected the dots? Moses says on the third day, Jesus is going to come down and meet with you. 
In Matthew 17, Jesus says, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. But he will be raised, when? On the third day. God has come to dwell among his people. But this time he comes not in a cloud. See, the transcendence of God, his, his being separate and independent from his creation, and the imminence of God, his, his nearness and approachable nature to his creation, those things come together. And they find their fullest expression in the person of Jesus Christ. Did you hear the contrast as Larry read from Hebrews 12 earlier? Again, Israel's quaking in fear and dread for what is going on as they see and behold the holiness of God. And they were commanded to keep their distance, stay away. The writer of Hebrews writes this in the beginning of verse 22. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God and heavenly Jerusalem, and to the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And hear this, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. God comes near to his people in the person of Jesus Christ so that we could draw near to God through the blood of Christ. Moses was a mediator to, to help kind of manage the sense of relationship between God and his people. But Jesus is the ultimate mediator because Jesus did what Moses or any other mere human mediator could never do. For when Christ died on the cross, his blood satisfied the righteous requirement of God's law that you and I break and cannot fulfill. And at that moment of Christ's death, the fullness of God's judgment was poured out upon him and was unleashed on the Son. And remember what it says. The ninth hour, darkness came over the land. The earth began to shake. Rocks split open. And the temple veil was torn in two. In that moment, Jesus took the fatal blow of Almighty God. So that by faith in His completed work, we could now enter boldly to the throne room of God without fear and without dread. What's driving your obedience to God this morning? Is it motivated out of sheer amazement that God would take a sinner like you knowing what you know about yourself and even what you don't know about yourself and that He would claim you as His own? Is that what motivates you to obedience? Do you obey because you long to delight more in your Savior and grow in intimacy with Him? Or is your obedience motivated by self-centered longings for things that God can give you? Or is it motivated out of trying to earn something that you'll never be able to earn? See, as we obey out of thankful gratitude, we can then enjoy the blessings that are ours and enjoy them in the measure in which God has designed us to enjoy them. For all who are in Christ, we don't come to a mountain like Israel did. We come boldly to the throne of Christ. And as C.S. Lewis said of Aslan, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, no, he's not safe. He is holy. He is to be revered. And he is to be approached humbly 
but he is good. See, we fear God because of his perfect goodness. And we see his perfect goodness as we fear him more and more each day. Christ was shaken just as Mount Sinai was shaken on that day when God condescended on the mountain. Christ was shaken at the cross so that you and I could live unshakable lives as we humble ourselves and live in obedience knowing that we're already accepted and delighted in by the Father and free to obey all His commands and enjoy His blessings because we're His treasured possession. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, forgive us when we mistreat or misunderstand the fullness of your holiness. That you are a God who is to be feared because you are awesome in power and in glory. And Lord, in our sin, we are helpless and hopeless to be able to enter into your presence. But thanks be to God that you supplied what we needed that we could not supply ourselves. You gave the mediator. You sent forth your Son to take upon our sins so that we might live in right relationship with you and enjoy the freeness of being able to respond in obedience because of what you've done for us. Lord, may that be our motivation. Where we're responding out of trying to earn something, would you convict us and bring us to repentance? Would you open our eyes to see the glorious truth that your delight in us does not change by the day, but you delight in us fully because you delight in us as Christ, your Son. You delight in Him as He sings over us and His blood is poured over us and covers us. We pray that you would do this for our good. In Christ's name, amen.